Welcome to the Primal Anarchy Podcast, formerly the Black and Green Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Tucker, uh, and this is episode 17, and it is about to be March 1st, 2019. Uh, So first off, I want to apologize about the delay since the last episode, but uh, it's been very busy around here. And I will get into all that here in a second. So let's start with some house cleaning, some of the things that have been going on since the last episode. Uh, And let's start here with my new book, Nicole Personality. This came out um, late January. A little bit of a delay with getting the actual books in, but the books were released. The PDF eBooks were released uh, by the last episode, which was January 9th. Um, So I'm really proud of this book. The the response I've been getting has been really, really good. Uh, 208 pages and... Um, yeah, a a number of things in here came out of the podcast and came out of various discussions I had in relationship to it. Uh, but as anybody who's listened to the podcast for a bit has probably been aware, uh, I'm not quite fond of missionaries and I'm also not quite fond of, uh, any NGO or anything else that, uh, you know, goes down to these frontier areas of civilization, uh, and just wreaks havoc upon them, destroys them, any kind of colonization. Uh, I know that's a real shocker to hear, especially if you're new to the podcast. Uh, So uh, a couple things I want to talk about about this book in particular regarding the book recommendation episodes. Um, And one is kind of a, a question, a generalized question about the politics of representation. Uh, So originally when I, when I, started dealing with the story and this is so this all revolves around early last year uh there was a canadian man sebastian woodruff who had gone down to peru and had shot uh this shipibo healer uh olivia arrivalo and killed her so he was down there to to learn about ayahuasca to uh extract as many Europeans and many Westerners had done prior to him, uh, extract what he believed was a cultural memory that was rooted to a plant uh, in the Amazon, in which case not not just a plant, but a brew made from plants. Ayahuasca is a, a vine, and you mix the vine with uh, other species of plants, and it brings out the psychoactive properties. Um, so he had gone down to learn about this, and there's a lot of discussion about how ayahuasca can be used for healing addictions and PTSD and things like that. He was going to extract it from this area and take it back to Canada and heal people uh, and open clinics because he thought it'd be more successful if you use ayahuasca in the treatment of addictions instead of, you know, the kind of standards and practices that were being used at the time. Uh, So there's a lot to unpack with that whole issue, which is how I ended up with the book. Uh, But I've discussed it here before. Uh, I'm not going to go through it all entirely, although uh, I do have a reading. uh, My one of my best friends, Lilia, did do a reading of the first chapter of the book, um, which is called The Shallow Grave. And I'm actually going to put that on here in a minute here, but I wanted to kind of talk through a little bit of this first. Uh, when I originally had this, and I, I might have talked about it on the podcast a little bit, to be honest. Um, when I originally found out about Olivia Arrivalo being killed, my initial reaction to it was, you know, there's a there's a, a good number of people involved in this movement to kind of uh, 
uh, relearn and re reinvigorate indigenous traditions and traditional ecological knowledge. And that means that there's a lot of primarily native women, uh, descendants of native women that are involved in healing practices and traditional healing and plant knowledge, herbalism, things like that, uh, that are also very heavily involved in decolonize. And this movement seems to have been picking up and I find it very, very inspiring and very, very important. So my initial reaction to the story was that I was going to interview uh, one, two, three, or four people, however many, uh, particularly from that group to get their perspective on this and just hopefully kind of get an idea of you know, how, how this was being impacted and kind of how that was being brought about. And basically there's a large discussion in this book about cultural appropriation uh, and things like that, the, the nature of extraction and, and, you know, kind of the white savior complex and all these various things that, that come about in this that I, as a white man, thought, you know, I need to get somebody else's perspective on. And what it became immediately apparent when I had asked, I think it was like five or six people about this, was that my position was innately different than theirs. And it's kind of this thing where it's, you know, you, you take it for granted, as particularly as a white person, um, very much particularly as a, a white male, uh, that, you know, you can kind of take uh, anger for granted, that you can take all these different positions that that are granted to people because of white privilege and because of all this shit and because of, you know, toxic masculinity and all these different kind of things that are exceptionally pervasive in a patriarchal culture and patriarchal civilization such as ours. And it's easy to take those things for granted. And the kind of response I got was, was almost just like, I felt I felt bad. I felt guilty about even even asking some of these people, and it was kind of not taking into account and, and wanting to promote this voice and promote these perspectives, not taking into account the fact that it's just the very act of asking was triggering people and was bringing up a lot of shit that it's kind of like, why do we have to keep saying this? Which is also kind of a theme that's been coming up throughout the Wild Resistance Journal and. A, a, a number of these things, these interviews I've done lately, and um, you know, other people I've talked to, it's like there, there's not a lot that's new here. And in some degrees, you want to believe that people are more willing to listen, and that decolonization has been taken more seriously. That you know, even very basic things about the nature of sexual assault and the nature of patriarchy uh, and exclusionism is is being taken more seriously than it it had been, perhaps. And it, you know. In some ways it is, in some ways it isn't. I know I've, I've gone on about it before, uh, the whole idea that people are saying there's a national conversation that's being taken place. Like right now there's one that's, or has been going on because of blackface and because of things like that. And people are saying, it's like, oh, we're having this discussion and all this shit. And really it's just a way for people to feel like they've aired their laundry. And you've got this really insane dichotomy and vastly spreading dichotomy within society where you have a group of people who are taking this thing seemingly seriously, although in the age of social media and all this shit, it, it, it doesn't last. It just kind of becomes this thing, this cathartic kind of push. And then you get some degree of residuals to it, but you know, the, it just kind of creates this, this world where on one hand you get a lot of seriousness taken about these issues and the other same, at the very same token, you know, the, uh, the plate of the white male and all this shit is kind of like taking it and running. They just couldn't make it more clear. They don't give a fuck. Like if there's, it's not like there's 
something new about white supremacy and patriarchy and things like that. But because there is so much interaction on social media and it is everybody's always just maybe a click away and trolls are always instigating in between, everybody is closer, uh, it becomes a little more apparent how how much of a, a split there can be in reality and the way that reality is perceived between these two camps and the, the basic entitlement that comes with uh, white supremacy and patriarchy and just basic hierarchy in any regard. Um, but there, there's, you know, kind of fuck all being done about it uh, and no no chance for accountability, especially not within civilization and within all these systems. So, you know, but that, that means that it's not just a matter of like who you're speaking to or you're speaking on behalf of and all these things, but just like, you know, you, you get these little glimpses here and there because it is a choice for, you know, white males in particular, but a lot of white people in general, uh, to, to not have to acknowledge all these aspects and to not have to acknowledge something as basic as how, you know, the idea of, of trying to find a voice and elevate it can be causing problems. So it changed a bit about my perspective with how to tell the story. And it made it very clear, and I say repeated throughout the book, that I want this to be Arivala's story. I'm a lot closer, though, to Woodruff in terms of who he is and this position he came from in the society and going down there to extract ayahuasca. And there's things about why he had done what he had done and the narratives that are being spun around him that go back to, you know, this entire kind of white savior civilization coming to save the day complex, this religious complex that goes back to the origins of conquest and really the origins of domestication and the origins of agriculture and the origins of civilization and becomes the embodiment of all these different processes and all this, every aspect of domestication is this basic story, this basic narrative, he meant well. Like, it might be ugly, it might not have happened how you expected it to, but hey, he meant well. He was here to help. That is the entire story of civilization. So within this one interaction between uh, Sebastian Woodruff and Olivia Arevalo, you had that entire story. So my point with all this wasn't it's it's not to try and present because I, I do think a lot about this and it's going to come through even with the recommendations and with all the work in general um I, I you know being very cognizant about what the voice is and how the entire argument is being presented i'm not trying to present uh olivia arivalo's perspective i'm trying to understand it and i'm trying to understand how she related to shipabo culture and Amazonian history and the history of civilization in general. And that's a different story that I can tell, and I'm not trying to um, Columbus her story. Uh, and at the same time, I'm not here to give credit to Woodruff. I'm not here to apologize for him. You know, there's there's a difference between upholding the heritage of and upholding uh, all the aspects of the civilization that I'm a part of and Woodruff is a part of that Arivala was being impacted by and had taken part within uh, but it is my place to to confront that reality because that's the nature of a globalized world is that, you know, myself, Arivalo, Woodruff, three different countries on two different continents, and yet there's a, still this connection and still this the tie that's going to be between them, all of them. In this case, uh, comes down to all the different things that are all the different aspects of superfoods and whatever else has been extracted from 
the Amazon down to, you know, people trying to say that ayahuasca is going to help with rewilding and it's going to help people get through civilization and have all these psychological breakthroughs and things like that. You know, this kind of bullshit uh, that, you know, there there's a deep history to. And because we can be confronted by it as a consumer choice, we have an obligation to really understand how it got to be that way and how it got to land in front of us. So for me, I, I want to elevate other voices and I want to... I see that as my job as an editor with Wild Resistance and even with Species Trader with this Black and Green Review. You know, I try to help elevate voices, but at the same time, it's important to me to to not to know to know my place in this entire story, and that's why you know some of the recommendations I give and some of the the way I approach things is going to be innately different. I, it's not my position. It's not my place to try and speak for somebody else. It's just my place to try and make sure that all of these aspects and all the realities behind these things are in people's faces all the time. Uh, and I can just tell the story without having to say, hey, this is how it impacted me or whatever. I mean, I'm, I don't matter. I don't matter in the story. I'm not the story. Uh, I'm just telling the story. And it's a matter of being cognizant about the narration and things like that. So uh, that said, I am part of this book. I do feel like I need to kind of address that politics of representation. I had uh, some people, very few, not many, um, kind of complain, saying that there was uh, my my book recommendations tend to err towards white men. Um, you know, I could go on about that, um, and it's it's. You know, it's, I'm not going to deny it. I'm not going to say that there's not a lot of white men who come up on these lists and things like that. Uh, and one was I, I haven't finished with the book recommendations. That was just part one. Uh, the other is is that you know these are kind of generalized recommendations, and there's a lot of people I talk to, a lot of people I interact with, a lot of things that have meant a lot to me. Um, and it, it's kind of hard to cap encapsulate that entirety into one list this bit list is basically like if i'm going to point people in one direction for this or that what's it going to be and you know there could be a lot of books by women there could be a lot of books by people who are or are not white and there's also a lot of people a lot of these things are things that i've read and even a lot of the anthropology stuff that i'm never going to touch or a lot of the history stuff i'm never going to touch comes from academic essays i have that have a first initial last name and i have no clue at all. There's people that I've been reading for years that have been hugely influential for me, and I've never seen a picture of them. I know next to nothing about them other than some of the work that they've done. Um, so, you know, I mean, I, I think it's important and I think it's absolutely vital that you get, you know, you don't just take everything that you hear from white men, including myself. Um, but, you know, I'm not saying that anything that's on this list is like it. I have hundreds and hundreds of books. Um, I'm just trying to kind of distill it down here and I'm always trying to do things, but I can't make people write certain things and I can't necessarily recommend everything. And there's a lot of things in particular about books that have been very influential for me that came from uh, Native American struggles and things like that came out of aim, uh, that frankly, I'm, I'm not comfortable always giving recommendations because, uh, there's a lot of shit that came out of AIM, uh, a lot of very conflicting stuff, and and uh, you know not not aiming at any one person in particular, but uh, 
you know, the politics within all of it was intentionally put in front of a steamroller as part of the COINTELPRO, CIA, BIA, uh, FBI kind of interactions and, and, and options and realities. Uh, and it's, it's created situations where you get this, this kind of, I don't want to say lack of credibility, but, uh, and it's certainly not necessarily inauthentic, but you get these various narratives and some proposed to reflect a more broader perspective than they should. And you could get to very extreme degrees of total plastic shamans and, uh, you know, pay to play kind of white shaman situations. You get somebody like Sunbear or something like that. Uh, but there's a lot more complexity to it and it's hard to kind of jump in and out of it. And I don't know if I'm the best person to, or that I would say that I'm in the best position to say, you know, what books had, had meant a lot to me or what books would necessarily recommend. I would necessarily say to recommend. I can say Mary Crowdog's books were really important for me to read. Lame Deer's books were very important for me to read. Black Elk's books were very important for me to read. John Trudell's spoken word is, in my opinion, some of the best stuff I've ever heard. And his stuff talking about mining the spirit and civilization mining the spirit is untouchable. Um, I would recommend Trudell's stuff. Uh, and... I, I think Lame Deer is important to read. Uh, I know that there's been some questions about some of Black Elk's, some of the books that were spoken to and transcribed for Black Elk. Uh, but I'm, I'm honestly, I'm not in a position to say at this point where all that is at. So I'm going to get into some more of that stuff and I'll get into into the book recommendations and everything like that. But, you know, I just think that it's important to take everything with a grain of salt like i said obviously things especially things that come from me perhaps uh but you know obviously the book recommendations is not the be all end all and everything is kind of just opening a door and that's what i hope to do with my writing that's what i hope to do with this podcast uh is to do as much as i can and also never to try and reflect necessarily where to, to speak on behalf of of other people um but just to, you know, to not make myself the argument, which I should say is a big reason why Derek Jensen's books are not on this list. And I've, I've gone off about Derek for a long time now. Uh, I haven't done it a whole lot on the podcast, but you can see that kind of predatory cultish behavior in a lot of his stuff. So people have asked me and I've been asked in response to the first one, whether or not I would recommend any of Derek's earlier books. And the answer is no. He's always made himself the subject, and that's why it was so easy for him to go in the kind of insane direction he has, where he got to the point where he wrote this insane book about dreams, started calling himself Tecumseh, started talking about fucking trees. And I'm, I'm not kidding. These are these are things he's actually said and, and everything. And he had a book where he talked about uh, taking a shit in his backyard so his dogs could eat it. And, you know, but it goes it goes back to language older and word and culture make-believe Uh you know, as far as him saying his chickens would stick their heads out on the on the chopping block. Uh, it's just it's just bullshit. It's just kind of fantastical bullshit and there's a, a very long legacy of this kind of thing. Uh, and him trying to pull the my you know, my Indian friend kind of shit. It's all just to to steal the narrative and steal the story and make it about himself, which is why he can read his books and feel very cathartic. Uh, it's it's a ruse. It's all meant to be kind of theatrical. Uh, and he can say very 
harsh things. You could say very brutal things about civilization within it, but it's all kind of couched within this context. I'm not going to go on about it at length. Just kind of like an example of, for me, what not to do uh, in terms of my own writing and in terms of what I'm looking for in, in books. So if anybody ever says, hey, you know, but I, I think that Endgame, I think that Culture Make Believe and that Language Older and Words were, were great books, they, they're, drop them. Shellis Glendenning's My Name is Shellis and I'm in Recovery from Western Civilization is an infinitely better book than everything that Derek has ever written. And in terms of everything that he had kind of gone after and everything he had tried to cover, I feel she covered that better. Uh, and even, you know, the culture may believe uh, the stuff about pornography and objectification and sexism and things like that. Susan Griffin did a way better job. Carolyn Merchant has done a way better job. Susan Sontag um, had done a better job. But, I mean, uh, you know, none of them had to sit there and write about jerking off the internet porn to get to those points. So if you're curious about specific books that you'd rather, you'd, you'd like to get specific recommendations instead of this or that book, uh, you can go ahead and write me blackandgreenpress at gmail.com uh, and I will cover that on future episodes. And we will see if I get through all the recommendations this time or not, but I will try. And uh, if you're looking for anything else that I haven't covered yet, uh, you can go ahead and email me and ask about that as well. And there's also a form on the website. I think I think primalanarchy.org, kevintucker.org, and wildresistance.org all have contact forms that you can fill out. So if you want to make it anonymous and you want to be one of these people who occasionally sends me really bad... Um, werewolf poetry uh that's supposed to be a slam go ahead i don't care it's that easy i can respond to it or not it's that simple so anyways that's a very long preface to get back to what i mentioned earlier which is the first chapter of call of personality which is my new book you can get it at uh blackandgreenreview.org there's a purchase page but if you go to kevintucker.org there's also a link, or there's a whole page for the book that has some, uh, some write-ups about it and everything like that. Uh, yeah, I hope you pick it up. I hope you read it. And this book is spreading a lot, and I want to do everything I possibly can do to make sure that anybody who is looking for information on ayahuasca or anything related to it, that this book gets in their face because it is obviously very different uh, from the kind of proto-neo-shaman, new-agey bullshit they're going to find otherwise. So, without further ado, I'm very grateful to Lilia for having read this chapter, and uh, here you get a little break from my voice. The Cull of Personality, Ayahuasca, Colonialism, and the Death of a Healer, by Kevin Tucker. Chapter 1, The Shallow Grave. As civilization spreads and deepens, it is ultimately man's self his species being, which is imperilized. Stanley Diamond, In Search of the Primitive A shocking amount of history can fit into a shallow grave. The wake of civilization is a trail of bodies rotting over decimated landscapes. Reduced from the cycles of life, infinite needs clash violently with a finite world. 
A trembling craving becomes the colonizer's justification before the anchors lift and the swords are even brandished. Scorched earth, manifest destiny, development by any other name, all comes down to ceaseless extraction. For Peru, that trail had a strong precedent. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. The wayward explorer set off for the Indies, stubbornly believing for the entirety of his life that this is where he had gone. That didn't stop the crowns of Castile-Aragon, later to become Spain, and Portugal from signing the treaty at Tordesillas. In doing so, they divided and staked their claims to the territory before Columbus set sail again in 1494. Seeking a new direct trade route to Asia, Columbus and the crowns he represented were perfectly happy sticking to the plunder of gold instead. Of course he didn't stop there. He gloated on his first voyage how easily his men could conquer and enslave entire indigenous populations. On his second trip, he successfully tested that theory by enslaving 1,500 of the Taino people. Most of them were sent to La Isabel in the Dominican Republic, Europe's first city of the New World. Of those, 550 were sent all the way back to Seville to the Castile-Aragon Kingdom. The arteries of the New World were now, quite literally, open. As Vasco Núñez del Balboa forcibly crossed the Isthmus of Panama in 1513, Francisco Pizarro was in his ranks. Meanwhile, Hernán Cortés began tearing through Mexico in 1519. Two years later, he destroyed the Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan. 1530, Pizarro leads his own expedition out to take Peru. Three years later, the Inca capital of Cusco is under his command. The bravado of the conqueror would have let their egos take total credit for the utter and absolute desolation that comes along with this very brief timeline. However, there was an unintended assist, disease. Smallpox makes its first appearance alongside Cortez's horde in 1518. By 1525, it had already spread to and wrought havoc among the Incas. A catastrophic blow to the native Peruvians, this is the wave that Pizarro rode in on. Smallpox was hardly alone. Over the next half of the century, measles, typhus and influenza are added to the mix. While the death toll of those, these diseases alone is nearly impossible to isolate, the best estimates in the Valley of Mexico alone are that the population went from 25 million prior to contact down to 1 million by 1600. Had disease not cleared the way, Pizarro, armed with only 167 men, likely would have never taken Cusco and claimed Peru. Not for lack of trying, at least. Bartolomé de las Casas spoke of Pizarro and his men like all of the other colonizers of the time, perverse butchers. They used dogs to rip people apart as they burned down houses and settlements. They tore babies from their mother's breasts to see how far they could throw them.
Las Casas, however, was more concerned with what he seemed to believe was the more demented tactic of Pizarro. After having extracted all of the gold and silver, after having enslaved and forced the servitude of the Peruvians, when he felt like they had nothing left to give him, he would hold a small ritual and proclaim the enslaved as subjects of the crown and that they were now under its protection. With this proclamation, he could act as though all of the domination, torture, enslavement, and decimation had occurred outside of the realm of the Spanish crown. In this act, he was able to completely wash his hands of it all. We become numb to all of this. Even in Las Casas' accounts, there's almost a biblical sense of lethargic passivity. Massive and grotesque displays of inhumane cruelty almost feel normal. Just like an act of a jealous and vengeful god, the very same god that both Las Casas and Pizarro felt that they were acting on behalf of. Hundreds of years later, it becomes almost passé to speak of the colonisation of the Americas. We're even less likely to look to the entirety of the Southern Hemisphere as it was taken by a collection of desperate and hungry European empires beginning around 1400. It becomes even more cumbersome to point towards the militant expansion of farmers and herders for thousands of years prior out of the Middle East and parts of Asia. There's enough implicit Western chauvinism to cover for the expanding mound-building nation-states of UTO-Aztecans and their progeny occurring in the Americas at that same time. The conquered Maya and Inca were well-versed enough in conquest that if disease were removed from the equation, it's doubtful that European invaders would have had the numbers or the technology to claim the new world as their own. We remove ourselves from all of this because we consider it history. We speak of colonization in the past tense. In hindsight, it all becomes an event. We get a start date and an end point. We mark it with landmarks and fill museums. Statues posthumously give murderers another pedestal to stand upon. A butcher like Pizarro becomes the iconic colonizer, loved or hated, he becomes a period piece of sorts, a symbol. In this, history grants us the permission to reenact the one thing that seemed to truly catch Las Casas off guard, the ability of Pizarro to wash his hands of his own actions. Because the reality of our world is that colonization is the ongoing side effect of unchecked and potentially unstoppable growth. From the dawn of civilization, this is the world that domestication has demanded. That is, a world where entitlement is the unquestioned virtue of might. In isolating ourselves in a presence separated from our own past, we no longer have to answer for the trajectories that led our reality to collide with the ancient world we all exist within. All of its relationships and feedback loops become the uncredited, off-screen deaths of a play we already considered over. We are living civilization. That means our existence is inextricable from colonization. It means that nothing is said and done yet. Nothing is over. Pizarro, like the other infamous conquistadors, 
becomes emblematic. We know what they look like. We have our opinions about them, but those books are written. In their own way, that narrative closes us off from the legacy that Pizarro, Columbus, Cortes, and Balboa typified. But that shallow grave? It's not for Pizarro. His remains sit in boxes enshrined in an altar, one that lays in a Catholic cathedral in Lima, Peru, a continual reminder of the right of conquest over the colonised. The decimated. There it remains, the ghost of a manifested destiny in the heart of its spreading cancer. The shallow grave I'm concerned with, this particular one, belonged to a Canadian man, 41-year-old Sebastian Woodruff. Separated by roughly 450 miles and 477 years, it is no less a reminder of the reality of colonization than the entombed and displayed remains of Pizarro. And I got a couple more things I want to cover quickly before I get into the book recommendations. Uh, formerly Black and Green Review is now Wild Resistance. It's our annual journal from Black and Green Press. Uh, and the newest issue, number six, which is the first issue of Wild Resistance, which is a byline to journal Primal Anarchy, um, should be here by now. I've had some delays with this issue, so I have the past few things, and I believe right now it is somewhere in Ontario on its way to the border. So they should be here. They should have been here already. They should be here any day now. Uh, and I will start shipping them out. Or it should be next week. This issue is 210 pages, uh, and it covers a lot of topics in the essays. Uh, I've talked a little bit in here on, I believe, the last episode, maybe the one before, or somewhere around there, about uh, the discussion around anarcho-primitivism versus primal anarchy. I have put that essay to the captives up at wildresistance.org. My opening editorial is also up there. Uh, I get into it a bit about John Chow, who is a missionary who was killed uh, by the unaccount or the uh, voluntarily isolated hunter-gatherers, the Centalese, on North Sentinel Island uh, in the Adamant Islands off of uh, India. Uh, and I know I've talked a bit as well on the last episode, but I just have to reiterate: I have interviews with Sita uh, Venkatshwar and Madhusri Mukherjee in this issue, and both of them have books that I brought up in the last round, uh, Matt Hussery's Land of the Naked People and Sita's Development and Ethnocide. Both are fantastic books, absolutely fantastic books. And the interviews with them are awesome. And then we have the interview with Luis Felipe Espinoza, uh, Torres Espinosa in number six, which is kind of like a nice little block on covering involuntarily uh, I'm sorry, voluntarily isolated uh, indigenous societies. Uh, in that case, he's talking about the Mashko Piro. And, you know, I, I can be a little biased, I guess, towards towards everything, but I suppose out of everybody, I probably have the best view about what's been going on in the journal since its inception in 2014. I think that interview block is one of the things I'm most proud of in all six issues. That said... The journal isn't something that gets dated. Uh, the way it's built, the way it's set up, it's meant to be uh, a certain thing. It's broken down. If you're not familiar, it's broken down into an essay section, uh, a section called discussion, 
uh, field notes from the Prime War, and then reviews. And the reviews aren't just, you know, hey, I read this book and I liked it. It's kind of like trying to take something from the book and actually engage it. We've had some long contributions in issues of that are reviews that are taken a lot. I think in the last issue, actually, I should take a look. Um, we've had some awesome reviews from somebody named Storyteller. And I think in this case, their review of a book called Tubes, talking about technology, you know, this ended up being over 20 pages. Um, so very extensive discussion. If you're if you're listening to this particular episode, or the last episode, particularly for the book recommendations, I talk about books all the time. Uh, I'm a I'm a nerd, and this is what I do. This is my life. I spend way too much time all the time reading and writing and getting involved in this stuff and i don't always get to talk about it so i assume if you're listening to the podcast you're interested in these topics you're interested in hearing about these books so i'm trying to get the book recommendations episodes kind of done and out there which is ironic because i'm talking a lot uh but you know I, the regular feed is all the stuff that's in black and green review or in wild resistance uh kind of the regular features of talking about books on the podcast and things like that um, so I, you know, it's, it, they're written and they're long and they're lengthy and in depth for a reason. Uh, but the essays just covering a lot of important things. I'm really proud of what we've done. I don't know that I can say in anarchist or radical history, if in such a short period, so much has been kind of added to an aspect of a critique and as what we've done in the past, I guess, uh, four or five years now. Um, so I'm proud of that. Uh, we're sold out of issue four. We have a couple or a little bit of issues one, two, and three. Uh, not not much. Uh, but the PDFs of all of them are available online. Um, and then the the actual books I do recommend. There's a reason we put out the print books. Uh, so if you haven't checked them out, I strongly suggest it. The discussion section, if you're thinking about submitting anything, is the one that's kind of like more open-ended uh, responses to the essays and responses to some of the ideas put out there or maybe incomplete thoughts that aren't as elaborated as an essay. Uh, and then Field Notes from the Prime War is a section that's very near and dear to my heart. Um, going back to Species Trader, uh, it's always been something I found very important and it was prevalent throughout Green Anarchy and a lot of Earth First and things like that uh, to really kind of focus on uh, resistance to civilization, resistance to technology, and just the the forefront, uh, the the frontier in every regard for civilization. So by the time this posts up, within a couple days, if you're listening to this after that, number six is out there, and five is still out there, and everything else is out there. So you should grab it. So wildresistance.org, blackandgreenreview.org has this shop with everything else on it. Uh, and again, the PDFs and eBooks are on there. Uh, there is a little bit of a price increase for this issue. Um, the price of paper, uh, because print is is taking a pretty big hit for a while now, uh, has gone up. I think three or four times over the last year. But uh, whatever it was that happened with the tariffs and trade shit and everything like that, it jacked the cost of logistics way up. So the, the cost of doing books got a lot more expensive, primarily in this regard for logistics alone. Um, so to people who think that Black Mirror Interview and myself are making money, uh, we're or I'm incurring 
a pretty extraordinary debt. So uh, I can assure you, nobody is getting rich off of this besides um, logistics companies, I suppose, if anybody. Um, if you buy them off Amazon, you know, they make their money. That's for sure. That's not the best way to buy them. Although I do greatly appreciate when people put reviews on there. Uh, buy them direct from us. Buy them from a distro. If there's a bookstore you like, ask them to carry it. Um, whatever, whatever we can do to get them out there further and wider. That's what's important. And that's why they're priced the way that they are is to try and get it out as economically as we can without, uh, just demolishing everything in the process. So, uh, that's out there. I'm excited about it. I'm very happy. The number seven deadline is roughly September 1st of this year. And this issue is focusing on anti-civilization and decolonization. Uh, so this is a, this is one that I, I think is long overdue. Um, I'm really looking forward to it and we're already seeing a lot of very exciting things. Uh, and if you want to send something in, if you want to discuss about something that you're working on or you have somebody that you'd like to interview or something you'd like to see, uh, you can email black and green review, I'm sorry, black and green press at gmail.com or go to wildresistance.org and there's information about the submission processes and stuff like that. There's some contact information in the forums and things like that as well. Uh, one last thing here. Uh, I am currently working on the edits for the second edition of my 2010 collection of essays for Wildness and Anarchy. Uh, I've gotten really good responses to that. When the book will come out, I'm not sure yet. Black and Green's got to clear out some serious debt before then. I probably will do some kind of fundraiser for it. I'm not sure what that looks like yet. Right now I've got Patreon, there's PayPal, and Venmo too. Uh, for getting regular donations or getting one-time donations of, you know, four or five years ago running an Indiegogo campaign or something like that helped a lot. I don't know if that's what I want to do. I'm totally open to suggestions, but, you know, there's got to be some kind of way to raise the funds for that printing of that book before it gets printed. I will release the ebook sooner than later, uh, but I am taking some things out of this edition and I'm doing some much needed editing on uh, some of this stuff and then uh, adding in a number of other things both published and unpublished to it so it's going to be a much more extensive book I'm in the process of that I'm nearly done with the editing of the current material and then going through everything else I uh, have the introduction so there's there's a chance I'd like to see that this the second edition will be done within two to four weeks uh, so I can get back to working on crowds and country um, it will be a much better book. I can tell you that much. Uh, and I've been very hard on myself as far as the, the editing of the first edition. There were some, some significant mistakes, some silly mistakes, but you gotta remember too, that some of the stuff that goes in this is from 2000 on. Uh, so particularly 2000, 2001, 2002. So the first few issues of Species Trader, uh, just to give an idea of you know why it looked like none of it was being really proofread or anything uh the first few issues were on three and a half inch hard disks and i think number one and two there was like 20 of them per issue so going back and forth through everything to find little things was kind of a pain in the ass and then things that did get changed in the issue didn't necessarily get changed on the original files and why it wasn't edited better in 2010 i i have no good excuse you get smarter with age. 
That's all I can say. Uh, yeah, uh, but I, I think it's a good book in terms of 101 and in terms of covering a lot of things. Some of the stuff that will go in the second edition adds a lot more depth to what I was doing and what I was talking about. And it's uh, pieces from my book, Catal or, yeah, Catalyst, The Birth and Death of Civilization, which I started working on in 2002, and I didn't end up ever finishing it. Um, the narrative in general started to shift around 2004, 2005, not, not with my writing, but in terms of the general uh, society's understanding of things like climate change, which is ironic to even say right now because it's going backwards. But at the time, Jared Diamond was pushing collapse out there. So the original idea was the the origins of hierarchy, the origins of power, and hunter-gatherer life and domestication was kind of the backdrop to make this argument for the realities of climate change and collapse. Uh, and very quickly that started to shift. So it just kind of got sidetracked. But I was doing a lot of talks at the time, and I was putting this kind of information out in a lot of ways. There's an essay in there, one of the first ones, called The Forest Beyond the Field, which is also in Species Trader number 4 from 2005, uh, which was more of a polemic overview of the consequences of domestication, going from nomadic hunter-gatherers down to agrarian uh, proto-states. And it was, it was meant to be kind of a backdrop for the material I was getting into in, in Catalyst, which is much more depth and has a lot more documentation, which is also the same kind of stuff I brought out in much more elaborate ways in my book that came out last year, which is Gathered Remains, the essays of which have been in Black and Green Review and then some other places as well, but also in The Cult of Personality and, of course, the book I've been working on, which is Of Gods and Country. Um, so there's a long lineage to it, and I think this adds a lot more beef to it, but it still has... Uh, I don't know how to put this, a sense to it that I think that, you know, the, the one-on-one kind of stuff and introductory aspect of it is still in place. It's not the book I would write right now, but it was the book I had written and a book that has meaning for other people. So it's been highly requested. The, the book's been sold out for a while. Uh, and I'm frankly going through and doing all these edits. I'm pretty glad that I feel like I get to start from zero a little bit, but yeah, that should be out, and I'll have more information on that coming up. So uh, to get back into the uh, book recommendations, uh, first off, I just want to mention and give a, a, a shout-out because this book is going to be coming out, um, I believe, in like a week or two. I think uh, March 8th is what I want to say. Uh, but Greg Grandin is a historian. Uh, I've used a number of his books in both Of God's Country and Cold Personality. So Empire of Necessity, Fordlandia, and which Fordlandia I think was like a Pulitzer Prize finalist, and Empire of Necessity. He's written some really good books uh, focusing on Latin American history and colonization. His new book, The End of the Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall and the Mind of America, I'm either going to have a review for it in Wild Resistance number seven or hopefully an interview with him. And if I do an interview with him uh, as an audio file, then I will probably end up sharing some of it on the podcast. But there is a lot in this book that I think is really important. And if you want to understand the racist entitlement that underlies the entirety of the American identity, this book covers a lot. And it obviously is written in a way that ends in a very contemporary current kind of uh, 
twist. I mean, you know, we're talking about the border wall, and this was written and coming out before the national emergency was declared, but really kind of sums up, I think, kind of everything you need to know. And in, in many ways, <clears throat> it is a a good companion for an extension of, and in some ways even a rehashing of Richard Drennan's Facing West, The Metaphysics of Indian Hating and Empire Building, which was one of the books that uh, easily could have been or should have been on the earlier list of books that were kind of fundamentals for for anti-civ critique. And uh, Drennan's book came out in 1980-1990. It's really good for understanding kind of like the frontier ideologies uh, and also, you know, the fragility of empire. So in terms of End of the Myth, I think it's important because... uh, it goes well with call of personality, in my opinion, and kind of the idea of call of personality and, and uh, of gods and country. So focusing on the ways in which the frontier is ever expanding in those books and in Grandin's book, it's talking about how the frontier and the idea of the frontier and the idea of always having a place to go and an idea of being able to kind of displace constantly the uh, anger and outrage of a bunch of uh, pissy, fragile white men has always been the foundation of America, and that first comes along in the colonization, that comes along in westward expansion, that comes along in the displacement of indigenous societies and the the complete uh, genocide of indigenous societies, and then is further moved down into to throughout Latin America and throughout the rest of the world, as the nature of colonization was really just like what made America tick, what made America work was just having this idea that there was vast space. If you're comparing it to England, which is tiny by comparison, um, yeah, it it really kind of shows how, how this works and how the entirety of our sense of freedom, the entirety of the American identity is based off of this entitlement and just, you know, there's no other way to put it, but... Uh, just complete genocidal white supremacy. So yes, I think this book is really important. Uh, I'll just read one paragraph from it uh, to kind of encapsulate, like, you know, does it, is it just about the wall? And the answer is no. It's about the idea of the frontier and the role the frontier has played in the creation of American identity and the role expansionism has played in the American identity uh, and then what it means for for the wall as a symbol and the border as a as a barrier and a symbol which by the way if you're not aware you know there was nothing there it wasn't even the border wasn't even clear between the u.s and mexico at all until like 1906 i believe uh and then 1920s after world war one uh you know there was just uh, there's a huge amount of history there's a lot i want to get into about this book but i'm not going to i'm going to do my best not to right now uh 1920s really reactionary racist response after World War One, and that's when the border became started to become enforced, and it was all entirely the border patrol was all done by the was all Klansmen, uh, and horrifically racist. All the border violence entirely depri- derived from Klansmen going down there and starting these vigilante posse's and lynching and hanging, executing people, and raiding New Mexico. Uh, there's a, there's a whole history here. I really want to get into it, but uh, the you know showing the wall and the border in general, which again I should point out. I got to point this out. The first actual long 
structure of the fence that was being built along the border happened after World War II. Uh, the first long stretch of fence was made from the fencing, fencing and fence posts repurposed from Japanese internment camps from World War II. So it tells you everything about you, what you need to know as far as how just straight up xenophobic and racist the entire concept of, of the border really is. But yeah, kind of just summing it up a little bit. Uh, whether that wall gets built or not, it is America's new symbol. It stands for a nation that still think freedom means freedom from restraint, but no longer pretends in a world of limits that everyone can be free and enforces that reality through cruelty, domination, and racism. And it kind of ties in a bit, too. I realize that uh, apparently Trump ends all of his rallies with rolling stones. You can't always get what you want, which is an ironic kind of thing for white boys having a temper tantrum, which is what this world is uh so end of the myth greg grandin you know i'm not saying this is the book that's going to tear down civilization but if you want to understand uh the entirety of the frontier and just how racist and insane uh the entirety of the american identity is and a lot of the ideas about uh supposed rugged individualism and things like that are then there's that and i'm also very excited uh i got this book to review called empire's tracks i believe the person who wrote it uh Menu Karukua. I might have butchered the name. I apologize. Um, I'll review this for number seven. Uh, and if, if it goes a certain way, maybe I'll even do an interview as well. Uh, it looks really promising, though. Empire's Tracks, Indigenous Nations, Chinese Workers, and the Transcontinental Railroad. Uh, like I said, I've, I've barely dipped into this book at all. But I did see a bit in here that I really wanted to touch on. Um, I'm trying to figure out how to even touch on this without getting into it too much. But he's talking about the situation about the uh, golden spike that was put down to pull together the first transcontinental railroad uh, and what it meant in terms of symbolism uh, and the fact that when they when it was when it was pounded in, it, the actual spike was missed and there was Stonecalf, who's a uh, Cheyenne, who spoke at that ceremony a uh, pretty scathing speech from what I'm seeing uh, but Manu's take on it uh, says against that failure of not hitting that spike Stonecalf spoke to the collective lie a mythology of the United States as a nation and not an empire and that should sum up if you're familiar with anything about me my excitement about that book and the entire take on it the idea this you know the notion of kind of hegemonic control and the idea that there's this falsehood of nationalism that's created to make it seem like, hey, we're all in it together, all of our voices matter, which is, of course, always 100% a way to suppress other people's voices, predominantly indigenous people and everybody else that has been enslaved and kind of drawn into the colonial and awful reality of civilization. So those are my most recent kind of picks in general there. And then we get on to this other stuff. So I want to make a note on some eco-feminist stuff here. Uh, I'm not entirely sure. I know in the last episode I mentioned Susan Griffin's Woman in Nature as a book that's been very influential for me, which it has. Um, and I did mention Susan Griffin and Carolyn Merchant. Uh, I, I do have to admit I do need to read Death of Nature again. I read it a long time ago and um it was it was a book that was really important for me and i remember that it, it does discuss a lot about the origins of modern science and the nature of patriarchy within that 
uh, and it's stuff that's kind of come back to the forefront, I think, a little bit lately in terms of, uh, you know, the the discussion around this, uh, this Northam douchebag from Virginia and the blackface, which is in the uh, his, his medical yearbook. So I ended up actually going through some of the medical yearbooks from the 60s uh, and holy shit I mean they're they're crazy it's it's I think that you should definitely check some of these things out I mean not only would yearbooks at the time have a lot of just overt racism but the entire nature of what the medical school yearbooks were is probably outside of the realm of what I think anybody had would, would have known or experienced um at all or would have any idea of and it's it's i'm not even sure what what it is it's kind of like if a bunch of medical students put out a leather-bound zine um and it just happens that they're a bunch of racist sexist assholes uh and so i mean there's aspects of it that aren't aren't shocking even though you know they they should be things that shock us which is that the obgyns are all white dudes um and you know but it's just kind of insane stuff uh, rape jokes, um, constant references about nurses as just being kind of like eye candy for the doctor. But you can kind of see, I mean, if, if it needs to be seen, but it, I guess it does, that the entire medical industry is really just a sham based off of, uh, you know, entitled white men who, who predominantly entire, entitled white men, but now anybody with power, anybody in position of control to be overly confident and to kind of take on the mantle that has been handed off by all these douchebags. Um, and, you know, going, going back to the Enlightenment and going back to, you know, witch burners and things like that who, who had just seen any method of healing uh, outside of the, the learned men um, as the devil or as, as any kind of detraction from civilized power, which in a way, you know, I suppose it is. Um, but the entire medical industry is... is awful uh and people often want to point out to it and say it's like well here's an argument for civilization as we're living longer lives and it's because of science it's because of medication you know we've created almost all of the problems that these doctors are having to fix but we totally undercut traditional knowledge when it comes to healing when it comes to herbs when it comes to uh traditional ways of 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 handling injuries and you always get this idea and i get this this line thrown out all the time it talks it's like oh well you know uh, before civilization, somebody steps on a thorn, they get an infection, and they die. No, <laughs> it doesn't happen. People do die uh, in accidents. I mean, that happens in, in any kind of condition, but uh, it, not from infections and not from, like, these really minor things. And there's even a lot that's coming out now and increasingly, like, knowledge uh, and expanding the understanding that, you know, the, the devastation of contact and conquest was predominantly through the spreading of disease. But uh, there's there's more being put out there, and I think Paul Kelton is one of the people who's been doing a lot of work on this, uh, talking about how you know you couldn't have had that, that level of disease take over uh, and that spread of pathogens without the complete disruption that was happening at the very same time, targeting traditional knowledge, targeting healers, targeting shamans, uh, and to specifically wipe out that knowledge, but also having these these wars of contact and the the introduction of steel tools and the introduction of uh, firearms and things like that that could cause this otherworldly level of absolute 
devastation and could take out huge ecosystems. And we've seen, uh, there's a recent report in The Guardian uh, that was talking about the um, mini ice age, which Brian Brian Fagan had talked about. I don't think he necessarily had, this is the causation of it. Um, He had written some books about the little ice age that happens right around the time of the uh, colonization, the original conquest of the Americas. Uh, But that was proven to be seen that so many people had been killed. So many Native Americans had been killed at the point of contact and conquest that their absence from the landscape shifted carbon emissions uh, and had actually caused a a little ice age as a response. I think it was a couple degrees Celsius difference. Um, That's insane. That's crazy. And uh, and, uh, I mentioned... In the last episode, James Bridle's new book, New Dark Age, uh, he talks about how the date for the Anthropocene should be 1492. Uh, and even without having this kind of report or having this kind of statement, I mean, that's that's another thing to bolster that. But it seems that the first major carbon impact caused by human activity was the domestication of rice, and particularly through rice paddies. Um so, you know, if you want to talk about the origins of the Anthropocene, maybe that should be the starting point. But particularly, yes, I mean, the the point at which this global colonization really started to just infest the Southern Hemisphere, which it, it had happened before. And I mean, Egypt uh, had uh, been down in the Congo and had gone after pygmies for slave raids, uh, you know, over a thousand years ago. Uh there's, there's there's definitely precedent for this stuff, but it was the steam power. It was the steel tools. It was all these other things and this, you know, this inexplicable pathology that caused this, this group of people that had to have been just miserable and just seemingly without any kind of depth or, or floor in terms of their depravity that just did not care and went after everything. So the... I actually looked it up too in relation to this. I mean, the average life the average life expectancy in the early colonies, particularly in Virginia, even up to the 1700s, was 25 years of age, and the average lifespan at 1900 was uh, 25, I believe. Actually, I talked about this with Nora in the interview in number five, um, 25 or 30, or I think it was yeah, it was 30. Uh, you know. It, the the hunter gatherer lifespan is significantly longer than this, and all the numbers that kind of indicate that it was a lot shorter. Uh, there's a number of compounding reasons as far as where where those lower numbers come from, and they they primarily come from the fact that we don't get those numbers at all until there's an anthropologist there, or until there's a missionary there within these societies, which means that there's settlements, which means that there's been contact, which means that there's ongoing efforts to expand into these regions. And likely had been for 100 years prior to direct contact and, and recording of any kind of data. Uh, so that those kind of numbers, you know, uh, fucking assholes like Steven Pinker are going to pull that kind of shit out all the time and say, like, well, here's, an, here's the argument for civilization. We're living longer lives and better lives. It's like, well, you tilted the information to say that the, the average life expectancy during periods of active colonization is reflective of what uh, a hunter-gatherer past would look like. And then point towards first world uh, mortality rates uh, in a globalized society, a globalized civilization. I mean, it's just despicable, despicable kind of stuff. But you, the 
the reality of it is, is that, you know, we found ways to artificially preserve life and to, you know, drag life out in many ways that are just straight up miserable. Uh, but so much is being done within the medical industry and within this this uh, systemic uh, patientization of everybody to turn them into, you know, and a start to finish kind of case point for why you need medical intervention constantly. Uh, and it, it has a really, really nasty past and it's not very distant. It's not very far off. And the people that you go to, any doctor that you might see either had the same very overtly racist, sexist kind of training or, you know, the person they learned from did as well. Uh, so, Carolyn Merchant's work on that was important. I know that um, her 2003 book, Reinventing Eden, was one that I I found important. I don't know if I think it's necessarily important reading, but if you're going to go through kind of the eco-feminist timeline uh, and go back through all those books and some of the crucial books, and so I think it's The uh, Cosmic Mother uh, and Chalice and the Blade is one that's going to come a lot, and a lot of that stuff is based off of very dated information. And so... Carolyn Merchant's Reinventing Nature, or I'm sorry, Reinventing Eden, um, kind of even goes back to some of the stuff from Death and Nature and talks about the uh, the feminist work that was coming out. I think it's you know 60s, 70s, 80s that had really kind of taken that chalice and the blade stuff and taken a lot of the fertility goddess and and kind of pushed it far back and said that there was an agrarian matriarchal society or there were agrarian matriarchal societies that were kind of the epitome of egalitarianism, which we know wasn't the case. It, it didn't happen. And even uh, John Moore, uh, who's an anarcho-primitivist who died, uh, I think it was around 2004, 2005, uh, he had a, a pamphlet, uh, a couple of pamphlets. Uh, Love Bite was the one that I'm thinking of, but in Anarchy and Ecstasy, he kind of gets into it a little bit as well. And talking about some of the matriarchy cults and the the early upholding of, of matriarchy and agrarian goddesses and things like that, which is uh, wrong. I mean, it was really about upholding reproduction, not about upholding women. Uh, so, you know, if you want to talk about egalitarianism, nomadic hunter-gatherers are really where it's at. A lot of this other stuff was was taken a ride for it, and it was turned out to be wrong. So... I think that book is good because it re it goes back to some of that material and kind of goes through it. And there's been more in that regard. But um, I mentioned Barbara Ehrenreich, uh, Natural Causes, in the last episode. Uh, and I also want to throw out uh, her book, Bright Sighted. And also this, this book, it's a very small book. Uh, I think it's, yeah, just over 100 pages with a 20-page preface, which is uh, Barbara Ehrenreich and Deidre English. And so this book came out as a pamphlet in 1973. Um, so around the same time the Death of Nature and Woman in Nature came out. And it's just about, it's called Witches, Midwives, and Nurses, A History of Women Healers. The introduction covers a lot as far as updating the information that came, that they had available in the 1970s. But I think for being a 100-page book and being, you know, a very quick read, this one I think is really good, especially now to understand about the innate patriarchy involved in displacing healers uh, and demonizing women and demonizing any kind of healing while the medical establishment was being uh, built and just how kind of insane it really is. I'm definitely going to have more on that 
Uh, and there's definitely a lot more follow-up for it in general. Uh, but I, I know I touched on that a little bit, and I just wanted to follow up. But her book, Brightside, had dealt with uh, Barbara's book, Brightside, had dealt with her experiences with uh, with breast cancer, and the entire book talks about the cancer industry and really eviscerates the entire thing and this kind of like cult of uh, survivors or whatever, just kind of make it seem like if you know if you if you have cancer, then you know anything bad that happens to you is because of your attitude or it comes down to your attitude. It's, it's a good book. Um, and also in terms of addiction, uh, Dreamland, Sam Keones, I think. I don't have the book in front of me. A uh, really good book on addiction. And I might have mentioned Joanna Hari's Chasing the Scream. Uh, both books that look at addiction and try and understand the nature of community and what it plays in combating addiction or in preventing it. So it's something that I, I get into in depth in the essays Hooked on a Feeling and Gathered Remains. My book, Gather Remains. Um, those books are, are really solid and I think important. So I just wanted to touch on those. So uh, getting back to some people's requests. Uh, I, tour, I tourism, ayahuasca tourism. Ah, I got a recommendation for you. Cold personality. There's a good book. Um, all right, let's go to missionaries. So... Uh, I've gotten a lot of questions about this. And in writing of Gods and Country, uh, it's it's proven it's very difficult in that the Christian and Catholic churches in particular has spent a lot of time and money and spent a lot of time and money to suppress any information you could possibly find about missionaries in general. And if you go to look up information on missionaries, you're going to run into this all the time. And I've made it kind of a point to try and, and get it out there as much as possible at every step of the way and constantly talk about it. And if you listen to this podcast, you know I, I hate missionaries. And I think that they get such a pass because people think that this is this is something that's done and gone. And even when it came to John Chow, uh, this recent uh, murder by the Sentinelese, it, people still have this idea that like, oh, this guy is just kind of a, a crazy guy or whatever. And it's like he's not. He, he, he was trained in Kansas. There's plenty of people like him. Uh, and this is this isn't a historical thing at all. This is an ongoing issue. But books written about missionaries, you know, of God's and country is going to cover a lot of ground and it's pulling together a lot because there is a huge history. And if you go through, particularly if you go through ethnographies, if you go through Native American histories, and it's impossible to read uh, Native American biographies and autobiographies without running into missionaries and missionary schools and things like that. And there's a lot of recommendations that could come in that regard. Um, and the residential programs and the 60 swoop and all these different things. Just a, a couple sitting here next to my desk. We got resistance and renewal, surviving the Indian residential school by Celia Haig Brown. Uh, let's see. I thought I had another pile right there. I'll mention them in other places as well. Uh, Speaking My Truth is another one. Um, Education for Extinction. A lot of stuff about the, the residential programs and, and, they, and the residential schools, and they're a huge issue and a huge part of this. I'll get back to that a little bit more. Uh, but in terms of books about missionaries in general, really very few, and I, I always hope that if you know a lot more, 
Uh, I hope to hear about them. Uh, Norman Lewis, The Missionaries, God Against the Indians. Uh, so this book came out in 1988, but his original essay that kicked this off was, I believe, in the early 70s. Uh, it was a Sunday Times thing. Uh, and so this book actually, and that, that first, oh, sorry, 1968, Genocide in Brazil, was printed in uh, the Sunday Times in London. This is the book that kicked off Survival International, which is a, a group that, you know, I'm always kind of nervous about kind of throwing my support behind anybody, uh, particularly NGOs or anything relatively or remotely similar to them. Uh, so, so far, Survival remains a very solid group and, and one of the best in terms of information and news. They're significantly different than a, another group called Cultural Survival, um, which has produced some good material, but at the same time, I've I've gone to bat with them a number of times on this podcast. Uh, David Mayberry Lewis, who runs it, is is kind of the epitome of uh, the do-gooder liberal anthropologist uh, in trying to say that, like you know, the we can offset the the horrors of colonization by helping record indigenous languages and helping people get there get involved in the local economy. And so all the stuff I've talked about in terms of the Aceh genocide and in terms of the anthropologist Kim Hill uh, being involved with Goyaki Brander Mate and setting up these plantations uh, and really just kind of an extension of the encomienda, uh, you know, colonial systems and just updating them for a very liberal sensibility. You know, these people are all behind that. So I, by no stretch of the imagination do I, I support any of those groups like cultural survival and, and groups like them that are trying to uh, help modernize indigenous societies. But the missionaries is part travelogue. Norman Lewis is a, a, a very famous uh, writer. Uh, a number of his books kind of have this kind of travelogue-esque element to them. But he goes through and he's talking about uh, these issues in, in South America and dealing with new tribes missions and uh, summer institute of linguistics and it is just insane. And so you kind of go back and forth. There's these, these chapters that are talking about getting these places and then just accounts after accounts of horror and torture and insanity. And it, it's, it's a really good book. Um, it's one of the few books that specifically kind of targets missionaries in general. Uh, and I, it's still in print, so that's good. I've got an older copy of it. Uh, another one. David Stoll, Fishers and Men, uh, or Fishers and Men, or Founders of Empire, the Wycliffe Bible Translators in Latin America. So, ironically, this book was actually put out by Cultural Survival and Zed Press, uh, but it still has a lot in this book that's really good uh, about missionaries and about understanding Wycliffe Bible Translators and Summer Institute of Linguistics, uh, which is one group, which is also the uh, one of the largest missionary groups in the entire world and they they go out and they they there's a whole history to it i've talked about it a number of times on the podcast and of course a lot of of gods and country deals with this matter but uh that one is a little bit harder to find uh and it's about the u.s evangelical mission in the third world uh but it has a lot in it it's a really good one uh is god an american this book is a lot harder to find than the others it's a relatively smaller book and it's an edited collection uh 
uh, an anthropological perspective on the missionary work of the Summer Institute of Linguistics. Uh, I'm probably going to butcher this name. Soren Havlkoff and Peter Aby. This was another one that was from Survival International. And there's a there's another group out there like Survival. It's called Indigenous Work Group for Indigenous... I'm sorry, the International Work Group for Indigenous Affairs, IWGIA. They've put out a lot of pamphlets, and some of the older ones are really hard to find. Uh, they were one of the groups that some of those pamphlets uh, really focus on missionaries. There's, I, I have some, and you can find some online, but they're not easy to get, which is really unfortunate. But they still do put out a lot of material, and it's also usually online, PDFs. So you can find some pretty, really, really good work. Uh, through them as well. Uh, but yeah, this book is a, a bit harder to find. Uh, it's another one that's been a huge resource for me for Up Gods and Country. Uh, yeah, and if you really want to understand SIL and Wycliffe and the dual nature of how they started and basically even knowing that they're supposed to be doing God's work, but they had to do, disguise it as just being translators or whatever. It's pretty much the exact same thing that all the liberal NGOs were talking about. Uh, so this book's a bit of a beast. Uh, Thy Will Be Done, The Conquest of the Amazon. Gerard Colby and Charlotte Dennett. Uh, Nelson Rockefeller and the Evangelism in the Age of Oil. So this this is uh, like 950 pages. Uh, real real fun fact. I, had, I got a lot about... Um, I think I've read bits of it, and I could be wrong. Uh, the opening chapter for Of Gods and Country, uh, the cold open of it is talking about uh, the Harani and uh, in the 1950s, Nate Saint and four other missionaries, you know, the missionary narrative is that they were martyred. Uh, they were killed by the Harani. They were speared in what was the most obvious of outcomes. Uh, and this was the event that really kicked off the post-World War II missionary uh, fiasco that is, continues on till now. And that's part of the wave that John Chow was writing on. And by all means, John Chow, I, I believe that he's being upheld as kind of, you know, a, the second coming of Nate Saint uh, as this martyr that was meant to ignite um, the, the missionaries and that evangelical press uh, or push or whatever uh so this covers a lot and talks about rockefeller talks about the united states government the role rockefeller played uh, as a millionaire potentially as a billionaire and businessman alongside united states presidents and the roles that he was being that he had played in in being architect both of empire the oil industry and as a you know as a colonizer uh it's, it is a huge book. It covers a lot. And again, it is a massive, massive source for me in terms of God and country. It is relatively easier to find. Um, between these two books, I think whenever I started working on Of Gods and I started pulling some quotes from some of the missionaries that were just frankly totally genocidal, uh, I pulled some stuff from His God in America and, and Thy Will Be Done. And it was the first time I had had missionaries kind of track me down on these on the quotes, the pull quotes, and try and undercut them by trying to 
say that they lacked academic integrity and trying to find these weird ways to discredit the statements that were being made and to try and say that the statements they said were being made by missionaries could have been made. Uh, you know, really damning stuff. Uh, but I followed up on it and nothing that was being said here was true. And it was obviously like, okay, this is the extent that the the institution of Christian and Catholic religions have set about, and it's really kind of like the same kind of network that the alt-right has used and that white supremacists have used, where they go out and they're constantly looking for any kind of hashtag, any kind of thing, to zone in on somebody saying something negative, and then they tag somebody else in, and they have their ways of trying to get this argument to delegitimize, just kind of troll individual threads, and so doubt, but you know, if you look into it, it doesn't take long to expose these people. Um, and in this case, it happened very quickly. They tried to come in and say, oh, hey, you ought to check your sources. This has been disputed or whatever. And then I just kept pressing. It's like, all right, well, prove me that is wrong. And then here's my, I'm looking into it, and here's the proof that it is. What you're saying is, is bullshit. And, uh, yeah, it was just a good indication to me that I was headed in the right direction. Uh, so another book, George Tinker, Missionary Conquest, The Gospel and Native American Cultural Genocide. So this book is a solid one in a lot of ways, and it focuses on John Elliott, Junipero Serra, who Junipero Serra was a huge part of the colonization of California. And uh, there's been a number of books that are written, and I want to say uh, Santos is the guy who's written a number of books about that, but there's another book like Cross of Thorns. There's been a good bit more written about missionaries in California and California indigenous societies uh, which is good but it's also again you kind of have to break through a few layers to get to that circle but uh, Sarah was one of the was the the main person the main missionary behind all that Pierre Jean de Smet Henry Benjamin Whipple uh, so focusing on individuals and the, the only problem I've had with this book is that Tinker himself, though he's a Native American, is also uh, a pastor. Uh, it's one of those things that I can be, it, it's very hard for me to be forgiving about. Um, when people are soldiers, when people are involved in the church themselves, even though, you know, you can be a Christian and say, hey, you know, the excesses of others are, are wrong, and historically speaking, they were wrong, and historically the way they approached this was wrong, and think you're doing good and still, you know, be kind of towing the line in different ways. But, he, you know, I mean, he's not pulling punches in terms of the, the relationship between missionary work and colonization. Uh, it's just disappointing that he's himself Christian. Uh I wouldn't say necessarily it's a huge influence on how the book is presented and how it's written, uh, but, you know, it's just something that kind of comes up. But it's a it's a quick book. I think this one, this one, when you take out the end notes and everything like that, it's, it's 120 pages. It's a pretty quick one. And speaking of quick ones, we got War Churchill's Kill the Indian, Save the Man, The Genocidal Impact of American Residential Schools. This is a really good one. And Ward's work is always very meticulous in terms of sourcing and in terms of of you know how he approaches things uh and this one is is really good overview in terms of the uh residential school and uh, industrial school programs 
in fact, George Pinker, I'm sorry, George Tinker wrote the introduction to it as well, who is the author of that Missionary Conquest book. Um, this one's really good. And again, I, I'll say Word's, Word's got some pretty outstanding work. His work on the Cointelpro papers, his work on, uh, you know, the CIA and all these programs has been pretty massive. Uh, and in terms of Word's books that I'd recommend, um, I honestly wish I'd gotten another copy of Fantasies of a Master Race before going into Cole. Uh, my, my copy kind of walked off a while ago, but this book, uh, Literature, Cinema, and the Colonization of American Indians, he's got a lot in here that has to do with cultural appropriation and the ways that uh, in Native American societies and indigenous people in general are represented. Uh, that's really good. But in terms of his other books, uh, see, Struggle for the Land uh, might be the one that gets my highest recommendation. So there's that. I do recommend Ward's books. I'm not necessarily saying all of them, uh, but he does some really great work. All right. And then kind of segueing from that into well, some indigenous books that I think are really good. Uh, Vine Deloria Jr. is somebody who is very, very influential on me. Uh, and I think that Ward would say the same. Uh, Red Earth, White Lies, I think is really good. It's Native Americans and the Myth of Scientific Fact. And I'm sure there are people who are going to say that I can't recommend a lot of anthropology and then also recommend Vine stuff. But there's there's complexities to all this stuff and there's been a lot within the anthropological realm and I'm, I'm certainly not apologizing for it and I'm certainly not justifying it or saying that it's all one and the same. You know, it's it's not contradictory to say that Vine's words about anthropologists and archaeologists and things like that are true while saying that a lot of the things that you get from anthropology and archaeology are also good. But this book in particular, I think, is really important for undermining uh, the Bering Land Strait, uh, or the Bering Strait principle and the idea that Americas weren't colonized until, you know, 10 to 17,000 years ago, depending on who you ask. Uh, and it gives a lot of reason to question the carbon dating, and really it's primarily a big part of this is uh, combating the the Pleistocene overkill theory, which, uh, if you listen to this podcast, you should know unequivocally is bullshit. Uh, it's based off a lot of conjecture, and it's based a lot of just complete bullshit. And even even the Bering Strait theory, um, I, I'm sure people cross the land bridge, uh, but there's also been carbon dates, if you can believe them, that do back up a lot of Native American stories and oral traditions that say that occupation goes back way before then. And that makes a lot of sense for different settlement patterns throughout the Americas. But there have been dates going back as far as 130,000 years ago. Uh, I, I, I think cultural anthropology is important. I think history is really important. Archaeology and the certainty of it, I'm not, not so sold on. I'm not as convinced about uh, I think there's important stuff that comes from it, and I think there's important things that come that can be drawn from it, inferred from it. Uh, when it comes to carbon dating, when it comes to you know this absolute certainty about human timelines, constantly what's going to happen is just everything gets pushed back, uh, and it's based off making very certain-sounding theories based off of what information has been available or unearthed. 
and I just don't put too much weight in it. So I'm never surprised when I see dates that go back considerably farther. Um, and yeah, I, I'm I'm with I'm with Vine on this one. Uh, but as as far as Vine's books, uh, Custer Died for Your Sins is a really good manifesto that, especially for its time, uh, I, I consider Vine's books to be pretty essential. There, I, I'm not going to say all of them, but I will say Custer Died for Your Sins, uh, Red Earth, White Lies, and particularly God is Red. So I feel like I owe a lot to vine in terms of god is red for of gods and country uh and just trying to undermine a lot of ideas about you know the idea that there's a universal native american religion and as ward says and a lot of other people have said um in terms of cultural appropriation and kind of this new age faux identity uh that there is a a lot that has just been completely made up or fabricated or or greatly ex- exaggerated to create this really palatable consumer identity that makes you feel good about the fact that you're taking part in the suppression, repression, and ethnocide of cultures while also flattening them into a cartoon character, which again comes back to Ward's um, uh, fantasies of a master race. But... This this book in particular, I think his his take on religion is very similar to my perspective on it, and also undermining a lot of the stuff about the notion of of what gets transcribed whenever there's that anthropological encounter, and who gets believed and what what gets passed on. So it's kind of a lot of a lot of mythology, you know, a lot of lesser kind of deities or creators or whatever you want to call them often get promoted to gods by missionaries to try and kind of flatten the reality of everything so then they can, you know, their, their goal is clear. They want to get people to read the Bible and have it make sense to them. And innately it won't, and it shouldn't. Um, and I think this book does a really good job of summing that up and also really understanding the differences between religion and spirituality and, you know, the, the idea of an oral tradition that is meant to change, meant to flow, and meant to be tied to the land with religion, which is the, the role of a colonizer. So this is, this is a book that I, I, I love. Uh, Truth About Stories, Thomas King, A Native Narrative. Thomas King has written a good bit, and I'm sure there's things that he's written that I don't care as much for. I haven't dug into his work quite as deeply as I'd like to, but this book in particular... I really do like. I think it's really good in terms of, of oral storytelling, and as far as um, you know, being a book that you could you can really read and digest. Uh, you know, it's only 167 pages, uh, and it's he's a really good storyteller, and I think he he, he pulls a lot into this and understanding the different the difference between again the oral tradition and the written traditions. And that need for certainty and kind of that, that underlying premise that gets brought up here and there within books like, you know, which is where uh, Aaron Reich's books on witches and healers. Uh, so this one I think is really good. Uh, I, I strongly recommend it. I'm sure if you ask me in a year from now to recommend me more from him, I probably could give you a much better response. Uh, there's... 
a lot more and I did not grab my whole pile, but this episode's getting kind of long. So I'm going to cut it off. So there is going to be a third part and uh, maybe instead of having an hour of covering other things beforehand, I'll just go through it all. Um, I'm going to bring up a couple things. And this book I haven't read yet. I don't like recommending books I haven't read yet, but just to kind of there's few books out there that I have. I wouldn't say there's few. There's a number of books I have that I'm kind of like, I know I need to read this book. And it's also going to be really, really hard to read. Uh, and that is Sarah Deer's The Beginning and End of Rape, Confronting Sexual Violence in Native America. Uh, you know, I picked through this a bit and I, it's it's kind of high up on my, my list of things. But this one, a number of other things have been coming about uh for me to deal with and to go through because I have been asked and kind of coming back to this politics of representation. Um, I've had a number of native women now come on, come to me and ask to get involved with trying to expose uh, the, the NGO honor the earth uh, run by Winona LaDuke, who is a politician and a careerist that uh, has been kind of become the face of, a lot of resistance in terms of Standing Rock and in terms of uh, resistance to Enbridge Line 3. Uh, but there's a lot of skeletons in that closet. And there's a lot of aspects about the nature of social media and the, this whole thing about, you know, who you should listen to and, you know, always put this voice above that voice comes down to social media and comes down to the fact that, you know, you're, you're on these platforms where you're seeing a picture of the person and you can infer a lot about race, sex, and gender based on that and it's it's kind of fed to issues about um, you know within native communities even about mixed blood and things like that and uh, passing whiteness or passing in nativeness and and who gets picked up for these things and so you can see an over eagerness with liberal and leftist groups to grab onto anybody who kind of fits the picture to become a voice that they want to elevate for any of these issues. And this is this is a particularly hard, this is one reason why I think about the politics of representation a lot. Uh, this becomes really kind of complicated. And whenever, and for a Black and Green Review, and even into Wild Resistance, trying to get interviews for about Standing Rock and for, you know, what, what happened there, uh, proved really hard. And it seems that a lot of groups, even anarchist groups, were more than willing to just kind of grab anybody and throw them in front of a camera and let them speak and then act as though that person might speak on behalf of of the encampments or in, and on behalf of anybody else. And that's part of the reason that people like Winona LaDuke have been given so much ground. And it, it helps that she has this longstanding history uh, as a careerist. And she, you know, for me, uh, you know, she was Ralph Nader's running mate in uh, 1998 uh, for the Green Party election for the presidency. Uh, so I wasn't shocked to hear a lot of the things that I've heard and I'm going to be investigating a lot, but the, the hard part about this is just the amount of sexual assault, particularly on native women and the, the usage of, of natives and particularly, uh, again, native women by predatory NGOs that were fed by white liberal money. Uh, to protect this 
paternalistic, patriarchal, uh, white NGO kind of complex and these individuals involved with it down to sexual predators is is really a massive deal. And, and so many of the women that I've, I've talked to who were at Standing Rock for any amount of time had stories about being sexually assaulted there and then having stories about uh, the larger NGO structures kind of covering for those people or, or feeding into the situation where there was there was no real recourse and no real action being taken uh, to to protect these women. And to me, I, I mean, it shouldn't just be to me. There's there's nothing more despicable than that. But it's the when you're looking at these situations, with particularly the missing and uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women, the M- MMIW movement, which anybody who listens to this podcast really needs to to understand. Um, you know, as far as a book recommendation, uh, Seven Fallen Feathers with Tanya Talaga. Um, but uh, Missing and Murdered is a podcast by the CBC done by Connie Walker. Uh, there's another one called Thunder Bay from Canada Land. Both those podcasts are, are excellent, and I think I've recommended them before. I'm pretty positive I've recommended them before, and I will recommend them again. But the overarching violence against Native women is one of the most insidious and persistent realities of civilization. And it continues, even even in this context of, of missing and murdered women, to be a controlled narrative by anybody in power. And, you know, it's it's awful. And it is insane and it needs to be exposed. And if I'm being asked by people because... I don't have, you know, a blood relationship to any of these people that may or may not be offended, may or may not try and turn out to be, you know, any, any degree of corrupted, awful, or just complicit. Uh, I take that very seriously, and this is something that I'll be looking into, something I've been working on, and of course, if anybody's listening has had these experiences and would like to talk to me about it, uh, I encourage them to do so, and I understand that that's not always easy. Uh, but it's a hard reality, and so a book like this—it's—it's it's a, it's a book that should have never had to have been written. But that's one of the reasons why it's a, a book that needs to be read, and that's kind of the feeling I had. I mean, even the subtext of Cole personality: white man kills native woman. That's the baseline of that story. The entire story of it is—is is the nature of extraction, the nature of civilization, the nature of colonization. But the the tipping point for the entirety of the story is white man kills native woman. And this just happens, and it happens all the time, and people just get away with it. And there's there's so much systemic bullshit involved in all this stuff and how it and how it propagates and how it continues on. And it's an obligation to understand this and to elevate that voice and to tell that narrative and to, to understand the story and to understand our complicity within it and how these systems propagate because it just rolls downhill. And even when you go through some of the stuff that happened with AIM and what happened with on the, the Sioux reservations in terms of uh, the goons and going back to the FBI and everything like that, it all comes in this direction. And it is it is Native women at the bottom of that that system in terms of that, just the way it rolls down and the way it impacts people. And it's unforgivable, and it, it means that 
there's a, a real reason to be looking at all this stuff and there's a real reason to always be taking these voices into account. And I, I'm not saying that you shouldn't. And I'm, I'm never saying that by not recommending a, this book or that book that I'm not saying that there's a problem with them. Those are perspectives I seek out. Perspectives I think are very important and can also be a lot more complex than just having a podcast where I'm talking about specific books or trying to run through lists of books at a time. Uh, it's complicated. And the realities of colonization are complicated and it's not black and white and it's not as easy as saying this side is always right and this side is always wrong and if you grab any indigenous person that their their story is going to reflect anything else or that you know this whole idea of the fall the idea that domestication created this fall and we've been made imperfect by it that's from, again one of the reasons why i'm focusing so much on primal anarchy because I, I hate that i despise that i don't like that idea there was no historical event that just changed who we are, but there's historical events that impact the way that societies unfold and the way that we react and the way that cultural memories and cultural histories are built and replicated and onward. And that's what you're seeing in, in all these these situations. And that what's make, that's what makes it messy. And all of us are hurt by this. All of us are hit by this. But it's varying degrees and varying degrees of privilege to be able to even ignore it or acknowledge it or what. But it's a complicated situation and there's no there's no scenario there's no story here where everybody comes out scot-free so the idea that just saying it's like you know the idea that if you're you're choosing to read something from somebody because of uh the race which is all kinds of problematic and or their gender or their sex or something like that or their whatever experiences that they've had it's it's just not that simple uh and things are a lot more complicated but you know, I'm not telling you who to listen to or who not to listen to. I read everything. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's complicated and it's it's there's a lot of horror to it. Uh, and it's, again, a much bigger issue than I'm going to be able to get into in a podcast that's supposed to be about book recommendations. And I'm just going to give one more for tonight and then I'm going to come back to this and hopefully be able to get to the rest in the next episode. Uh, but this is one book that is among my most recommended books. Uh, In the Days of Victoria, Recollections of a Warm Springs Apache by Eve Ball. Uh, and so this is the story that was told to Eve Ball from uh, uh, Kiwaka, which I, I apologize if I pronounced that wrong. Uh, he died, I believe. Oh man, when did he die? I think it was the early 1900s, maybe mid 1900s. Uh, but the book is fantastic for a number of reasons. And in terms of resistance, the Apache are some of the most like untouchable groups. Uh, and there's always been a lot of focus uh, on Geronimo uh, instead of Cochise, instead of. Victorio instead of Victoria's sister Lozen, who was both a healer and a, a fighter. Uh, there's just you know crooked necks. There's all these all these people, and so many of the leaders and I don't know if you even want to say leaders, but some of the bigger names in terms of the Apache resistance would kill themselves before they were taken, and they were so efficient at war. Uh, I think it was something like, you know, on average, Apache warriors were taking 10, uh, 
10 colonizers or 10 soldiers for every one of them. Uh, and they were just so efficient. And I mean, it turns out that nomadic hunter-gatherer life not only is, is the most ideal in terms of resilience and in terms of egalitarianism, but also in practical skills that are applicable uh, for guerrilla warfare or insurgent situations. So from the perspective of resistance, there's a lot to be learned from the Apache. But, you know, Geronimo kind of comes to the picture because Geronimo was the one that that did get taken. He was the one that ended up becoming, you know, part of the Wild Bill uh, roadshow, which isn't, which isn't a slam on him or anything like that. But it was the ways in which he wasn't like a lot of these other Apache leaders or Apache um, you know, I don't know. I don't know if you want to call it chiefs. Uh, that that has made it, you know, kind of more of an iconic person. And and in this story, uh, you know, Kuoka was a child during during these times of the Apache Wars, and having seen firsthand and having firsthand experience with all these other people and all these other you know, massive figures in terms of indigenous resistance and seeing him and having this firsthand account, it's amazing because the, the reality of colonization this is the thing that's always hard to deal with. And I mean, it's like you don't, we, we always talk about civilization. We talk about the benefits of civilization. And people want to have all kinds of stories about it. But, you know, we want to have the saying that like, oh, civilization has made my life good because I've got all these machines and technology. And hey, you know, how are you going to argue with me about civilization? Because... This is where we're at. You need to take my my story into account. It's that same entitlement that, again, Greg Grandin nails, that Richard Drennan nails, uh, and all these books about the frontier and how that shaped American identity. And you cannot sit here and tell this one-sided story where the entirety of civilization and all the supposed merits of it come from the come from the top. And, you know, as, what is this, 2019, we're talking about 18, an 18 year old kid in Afghanistan has only ever known war. A five or six year old kid in Syria has only ever known war. I mean, these kids are, are growing up in these war zones, and a kid in Iraq, born in the early 1990s, has been exposed to more depleted uranium uh, and all these other toxins, basically, fallout of warfare constantly throughout their entire life, and it's just unending. If you want to talk about civilization, you want to talk about a globalized civilization and the benefits and costs of it, you cannot reduce them from that equation. You can't pull a pinker move and say, it's like, oh, well, we've made things better because this civilization would not have happened without the frontier. And that frontier is ever expanding, even within the, you know, it's it's not contradictory to talk about Greg Grandin and the wall is the end of the frontier. And at the same time, talk about the frontier as a constantly moving part of colonial realities, whether that be bombing campaigns in uh, Afghanistan, whether it be bombing campaigns in Iraq, whether that be wars based on climate change and climate instability caused by increasing temperatures and the decreasing ability of the Holocene. We have to remember that the civil war in Syria started because of climate change, because the land became more arid and then Assad started handing out the only remaining uh, arable lands to his cronies. Uh, and the cost of food went up, and that's where you had the Arab Spring was because of climate change impacting food production. I mean, this is this is the fragility of a globalized civilization, and we are a hundred percent tied to that. No matter how distance we want to feel from it, 
that's how it is. So you can look at a, a child that has grown up knowing only war in Syria or in Afghanistan or Iraq or in, in, all throughout the entire world. And that's a part of the story of civilization. And in this case, this was a, a child who grew up during this, this you know, for as, as somebody who grew up as, with, the, you know, for when well, I've been in Arrakis for 26 years now, uh, you know, all these, this kind of even romance at times and, and more realistic understanding of it since about the nature of resistance. These are these are wars that never should have been fought. These are these are situations no child should have ever had to have been put into. This is these are situations that never should have existed, but they do, and they're perspectives that we don't have to take into account. And what blows me away is in this book is what got me to turn on the idea of revolution. I battled with it for years, and even after having read this book, I still battled with it. Um, you know, having this kind of like I would say it's like the last bastion of leftism within me was the idea that revolution would could be there could be a revolution against civilization and that revolutionary history was was important for trying to understand that and the question i always kind of came up against was why do revolutions always fail on their ideals and the the problem i kept coming into was when you're looking at indigenous resistance movements you're reading about you know reading books like this uh and how people would die instead of being captured and, and put everything on the line and they never gave up was because they they knew what they were fighting for. They knew this culture. They knew this world. And it wasn't an ideology. It wasn't an idea. It wasn't like something new was going to come after some mythical revolution and just change everything. But this was something they knew and they were willing to fight for it. And that wildness and that, that spirit is pervasive. And it goes along with the entirety of civilization isn't just the nature of you know, who was doing what and who was domesticated here or there or who had been tainted by domestication and everything like that. That's what primal anarchy is. It's this wild spirit that lives on forever and is constantly fighting against domestication. That's why these things are constant. This is why we have systems in place. This is why we have systems of oppression, suppression, and, you know, systemic hierarchy is to continually drown in this point that you weren't supposed to think about it. You weren't supposed to think that there's any other options and you further embed yourself, you know, this is the point of Drennan, this is the point of Grandin, you further identify yourself with the idea of freedom as freedom to do what you want to do and freedom to take what you want. It is the basis of colonialism, it is the basis of civilization that there are people within this civilization who are entitled to what they want when they want it. And anybody else who gets in their way is a problem and they have a moral and legal right that they have created and fabricated solely to suppress other people for what for profit for money for what is it like these you think about these colonizers and what they did and the average life expectancy being 25 years the people who were involved in the slave boats for the atlantic slave trade they didn't live to be much longer than the slaves themselves most of them died on the boats just the same and it was all debt peonage it was all you know, servitude and things like that. It, it, the nature of civilization, the more you look into it, the less it makes sense. And it's just this displaced entitlement and it just this extroverted sense of the missionary's drive or the colonist, the colonialist drive that as long as you're always pushing further out towards this idea of expansion, towards this idea of building this national identity and turn 
conversion or taking things that rightfully belong to you. As long as it's always about what that person doesn't have that they want of yours, this fear basis, this entire idea of entitlement, then that's that's it. That's the entirety of it. If you're if you're not looking at what you have that other people are going to take from you, then you're not going to think about what it is that you have that is causing you pain, that is causing you suffering, that is causing you to live a life that is frankly just fucking miserable. And that's why you know we're in the first world and we're sitting here justifying all this shit. We have the highest suicide rates. We have you know we're, the CDC has stopped distinguishing between suicide, homicide, and uh, accidents. And drug overdoses in, in some cases because all these things kind of roll into one malaise that's just this passive state of suicide. And we're supposed to have it all. We're supposed to have the best. And this is what's, what's happening. We have all these options available to us and they're just detrimental to long-term destruction of even the possibility for continued life and existence on this planet. And yet, we're not happy. So what shocked me is coming from the society and reading this account of a child growing up in a period of warfare and he loves his culture. He grew up Apache. He didn't he he was on the run. They had to find ways to keep their children silent when people were sneaking by, when colonizers and cavalry were coming by. And it's just this most insane situation. Here is his account that I think any of us would see and look at and say, like, this was trauma. But that's the difference. That's why, you know, all these soldiers come back from other countries with PTSD and all these these situations where you have, you know, colonization resulting in and direct contact and conquest resulting in the killing of 50 to 90% and upwards of 100% of the population of any one society. And then you throw all these people together in a mission. They don't speak the same language and you get this kind of mishmash of cultures trying and people trying to make sense of what's been happening to them without this framework. And it's just radically different from this kind of situation where the the entire Apache culture was so resilient that even though they had some degree of warfare prior to uh, colonial contact and prior to waves of conquest, because the impacts of conquest go way ahead of, of the speed at which uh, Europeans were able to move across the Americas, the, the spread of guns and weapons and tools was way ahead and the spread of diseases even further ahead than that. But it, because the culture was still struggling and still fighting on their turf, they had to adapt their culture to it, but they had each other and they had some degree of, of a backdrop against which to make sense of this world. And they still had all the things that made them Apache. Uh, and it's amazing I mean, it's like for me to, to come from these perspectives and to come from the world that I had in terms of revolutionaries and in terms of like, you know, how do we get people to rise up and resist to this kind of scenario of saying it's like, well, they're not rising up and resisting just against something. They, they, they're they for this society. They know what it is. They've seen the world that they wanted, that they lived in and they understand it and they're just fighting for it. And it's an insane situation. It's a situation... I don't, I don't like to romanticize it at all. I don't like to pretend like there's something about killing that makes, you know, that makes you stronger and all this kind of like bullshit machismo that tends to get put along with revolutionary ideals. I mean, plain and simple, you know, if, if warfare is the state you naturally wanted to be in, there's something wrong with you. 
like that, then we can go further back and we can look at the impacts of colonization, domestication, and, uh, you know, the rippling effect of, of uh, colonial violence and civilized violence in your lives that would lead you to that point. But that's, that's not the life anybody wants to live. Uh, you know, it's not to say that violence is, is going to upend a society, and by all means it won't, and it hasn't in many cases, but warfare is different. And, and this kind of colonization, having to live in the, on the run and knowing that you would take your own life before you're being taken to a reservation or whatever, uh, it's huge. And I think it's something that's so unthinkingly foreign to almost any of us who have grown up in civilization. And the ripple effects of it are just massive. So, I mean, my takeaway on this was, was huge. And this book has, has been one of the most important books that I've read and one that I constantly feel like I need to point out, uh, just because there's, there's, you know, the people who are involved, are, there's a lot of amazingness to it, and there's a lot of amazingness in terms of resistance to the story, but most of all, it's just like this glimmer of seeing through a child's eyes the love of this culture while potentially facing its complete extermination, and it's just massive. I, I can't recommend it enough, and I mean, this is Again, one of the books I recommend the most. So I've got a lot more books to cover. Um, and I'm going to, it's, we're going on two hours here, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut it off here. Uh, again, if you've listened to this this long, I appreciate it. Uh, again, the new books, Wild Resistance number six, any day now, uh, that will be back from the printer and that will be shipping out. My new book is called Personality, my book Gathered Remains. Uh, it came out last year. I still strongly recommend it. If you support the work we're doing and the work I'm doing, it's it's very important that you try and help out as much as you possibly can. Uh, it's very, very hard to get anything out in this climate. And, and with the, the way that social media has shifted everything, it's a lot harder to get the word out. So uh, even though I don't recommend Amazon being where you buy books, but uh, you know our books and things like that, it's certainly not the, the best for us. You know, if you can review the books there, that does help a lot. That helps kind of bump them up. It's it, it sucks to be talking about working with algorithms, but this is how things spread. Um, if you like it, share it. Talk to people about it in real life. Meet with your friends. Share it on whatever. Uh, but there's also uh, Patreon and PayPal and Venmo. If you go on the podcast webpage, there's a link there for support. Uh, any donations help greatly and the more I can get the debt chiseled down the more I can get books rolling out continually Uh, so buy the books, support the books, tell your friends and if you can support the work I'm doing uh, that goes a long way particularly when it comes to getting out of Gods and Country and getting out for Lawless and Anarchy version 2 so thank you for listening Uh, primalanarchy.org is the website for the podcast wildresistance.org is the website for the journal kevintucker.org is my website and this is episode 17 of the Primal Anarchy podcast uh, brought to you in part by the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. Until next time, thanks.